Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this CI podcast episode, I talk with Erica Anderson about her new book, Change from the Inside Out, making you, your team, and your organization change capable. Erica Anderson, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. It is a pleasure to be with you today. You're joining us from upstate New York. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about your recent book, Change from the Inside Out, Making You, Your Team, and Your Organization Change Capable. I think that's an incredibly important topic in this day and age. Uh, The nature of work, the world of work is shifting so rapidly. There's so much disruption. Uh, not only in relation to technology, but just in in terms of work modalities and how we do the work that needs to get done. So change is inevitable. We need to learn how to lean into that change and be ready for it. That's easier said than done because we're all human animals. We're all uh, resistant naturally, I think, to change. Uh, And so we have to find ways to break down that resistance and help people become more capable of uh, successfully navigating change in a healthy way. As we get started, I wanted to share Erica's bio with everybody. Erica Anderson is the founding partner of Proteus International, a coaching, consulting, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. For over three decades, she served as a consultant and advisor to top executives at today's leading organizations, including Amazon, Spotify, Charter Spectrum, and the Yale School of Public Health. She's the author of four best-selling books, including Growing Great Employees and Be Bad First, is a popular leadership blogger at Forbes.com, and is the host of the Proteus Leader Show, a business and leadership podcast globally ranked in the top 10%. Her newest book is Change from the Inside Out, as I mentioned, which came out in October of 2021. I'm super excited to learn more about that. Anything else? you would like to share with us by way of your background and personal context before we dive on in? No, that is a wonderful setup. Let's, let's talk. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, whenever I'm interviewing authors, I always like to start by just asking about why this topic, why now? You've been doing this work in this field for a really long time. What was the impetus for uh, the efforts you put into writing this book, because I know it's a Herculean effort to, to get all those thoughts down, to write yes. something and to send it out there into the world. Uh, so tell us more about your process and why this book right now. 
Yes, as an author yourself, you know you know that process. So um, I always write books when I get curious about something and I want to crack some kind of a code. So in 2018, and we at Proteus have had a change practice for over a decade, almost 15 years. And we have, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it. We have a good process that integrates the practical kind of nuts and bolts side of making organizational change with that key human side that a lot of people don't even focus on. So we were doing a good job. And I noticed that people still had a hard time. People still, as you said, we're all human animals. It's hard. And so I, two things I got curious about. One is why is change so hard for us? And the other was what actually happens when a human being goes through a change psychologically and emotionally. I felt like if I could find good answers to those two questions, it would be very helpful to people. It would help not only leaders and framers of change, but also anybody, anybody who needs to go through change, which is, as you said, everybody, right? So that's that's what really um, led to the writing of this book. And, um, and I think I found good and useful answers. Yeah, excellent. And the timing's really good and important because of what we've been dealing with the last couple of years with the pandemic, which has only accelerated us into change, especially in the the world of work and the shifting nature of the work that we do. So professionally, the change that we've all been experiencing, I think has been tremendous. Uh, And of course, uh, in terms of our families, our home life, our community life, our our personal lives, those changes have continued to happen as well. So like you said, uh, resistance to change, that's nothing new. We've you know, we've known that that's a big barrier to uh, effective implementation of change initiatives for forever because they're well, always just so hard. But it, it's but it's so really to, to be able to to help us recognize how to get out of that resistance yeah. and to move beyond it is so so important. Well, and I'd love to, if you don't mind, start by talking about that. I I, I would love for our term of art to become not resistance because it's resistance implies a conscious, like I'm not going to do this. I hate, and it's, it's much deeper and older. And anyway, I'd love to talk about a little bit about what I, what I discovered about why change is hard for us. Would that be okay? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So as I started thinking about it, I looked at history. History is such a good place to look for why we are now. It often arises out of what we've been, right? And what I realized is that if you think about any person's life a couple of hundred years ago, 200, 500,000 years ago, that life, for the most part, that person's life would have been unimaginably stable to us, right? They would have probably grown up in the same place their parents grew up. They probably would have done the same work their parents did, eaten the same food, gone to the same church, lived in the same town, just you know, and the even the changes were predictable, you know, a bad year for crops, somebody has a baby, it's just very stable, very predictable. And in that life, a couple of hundred, 500 years ago, any large change, which didn't happen very often, would have almost without exception been disruptive, been a threat and a danger. And the smart money would have been on getting back to that previous known state as quickly as possible right? After the flood, after the famine, after the war, let's go back to the way it was before. That really worked for us. And so think about it. That's how we've been wired for thousands of years, that when change comes, it's dangerous. 
And what we need to do is that homeostatic urge, get back to the previous known state as soon as possible. And that worked, that worked, that worked. And then the middle of the 19th, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century. And now, as you pointed out with the pandemic, it's a geometric curve. Now more change happens to any one of us in a day than probably happened in our great-great-grandparents' lives. And so we need to rewire ourselves. It's not that we're resistant to it. It's that we're badly wired for living in the 21st century, right? Yeah. So the evolutionary psychology component, which is what I hear you talking about, um, we're wired. Our brains are wired. Our our, uh, neural pathways are set up in such a way to serve a different age, a different time, a different, completely different lifestyle, right? And so- um, so we just need to be able to recognize that and to acknowledge that. So when we move into the fight or flight response to some sort of change initiative, yeah, yeah, yeah. we, we yeah. can recognize where that is coming from. And then we can choose something different. We can choose to not engage in the fight or flight, uh, but to actually lean into it and to actually be productive in, in the type of, uh, in guiding the type of change that we need to that, see. That is a great way to summarize and frame it, John. And what I then discovered that my second piece of curiosity of like what actually happens when we go through change, I felt like the, the more, the clearer I could get and share with people what actually happens when we do go through change, that would make it easier for people to choose differently, right? If they knew what the process was. So what, what we discovered, and we, as you know, we came to call this the change arc, is that, so when a change comes at us, which is the hard, like when we choose to change ourselves, it's less difficult. It's when it comes at us that it's hard primarily, which it does in organizations. I mean, unless you're the person who's deciding to make the transformation, it comes at you, right? So when change comes at us, it turns out, and we call this first part of the change arc, proposed change, it turns out that people want to know almost without exception, three things. It's very predictable. We want to know, what does this mean for me? Literally, what does this change mean for me? What am I going to have to change? What is this change? Second, we want to know, why is it happening? Because we have this strong preference for the status quo, most of us, it's like, give me a really good reason or I'm not even going to listen to this conversation. So why is it happening? And then the third thing we want to know is what will it look like when it's done? I mean, as you know, as a psychologist, people have a really deep fear of the unknown. So if you tell people they're going to have to change and you don't tell them what it's going to look like, it's like, just walk over into that dark alley in the middle of the night. It'll all turn out okay. So people want to know what the future is likely. They don't even need certainty. They just tell me what the future is likely to look like after this change. So people start to ask those questions and we call that change resistance, but it's just this normal human. There's some things I want to know here before I sign up. Now, unfortunately, to your, to your earlier point, we, we ask those questions most of the time with a kind of negative confirmation bias. We ask those questions with an initial mindset, an initial assumption that the change is going to be difficult, costly, and weird. <laughs> and difficult means I don't know how to do it and other people are going to get in the way of me doing it. Costly means it's going to take from me things I value. 
And people are willing to talk about time and money, but more deeply, they worry that it's going to take from them identity and freedom and agency and reputation and relationships, those big things, right? And then weird just means, ooh, this is not, I don't, that's not how we do things around here. So even as we're asking those initial questions of what and why and what does it look like, we're already, we're, we're already thinking in these negative ways of, oh, but it's going to be really hard and it's going to take away important things and it's just going to be strange. So then what we noticed, and this is where I had my kind of eureka moment, is that when someone actually does make a change, it's rarely because external circumstances have changed much. It's almost always because their mindset changes. And they start to think to themselves that, oh, maybe this change could be easy or at least doable versus difficult, could be more rewarding than costly, and could be normal, could become normal. This could become the new normal. And and normal and, and in fact, and in fact, when when we're having that mindset shift, yeah. uh, you know, we move into more of a growth and abundance types of mindsets. And we, and we, we look for like how this will actually improve things tremendously. This, how can this improve my work life? How can this take, say there's some new disruptive technology that's being integrated into the company. How can this, I mean, it's painful. You got to learn the systems. Everyone hates learning new systems. Everyone hates, you know, going through that process. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, uh, six months from now, does that mean your job's going to be easier uh, that you can spend more time doing yeah, the strategic yeah, yeah. and creative stuff rather than the menial repetitive stuff. And if so, that is improvement on your life, exactly. satis- your quality and satisfaction. Uh, and that's a positive. But on the flip side of that, if you haven't gone through that abundance mindset shift or that growth mindset shift, when I, when I start to look at, um, you say, a new technology being, being implemented, and I'm like, well, goodness, now they're just going to take away my job because it's going to be automated and and I'm going to, and I'm going to lose out. And so it's a completely different way of looking at the exact same information, uh, which is, which is so important. Yeah, that you're exactly right. That again, a great way to summarize it. And it's funny because, you know, you can tell how people are thinking by what comes out of their mouths. And when people, when people involved in a change are helped to begin to shift and move and see the possibilities of it, you can tell immediately by how they talk. They do exactly what you just said. They go, well, yeah, this is going to take some time and it's going to be, might be kind of a pain to learn it. And if I do it, I can see how it will X, serve the customers better, save me some time, mean I have to do less busy work. They start to talk about how it could be easy, rewarding, and normal. And then you know that when a critical mass of people are talking about it, the change in that way, then they're going to be willing and able to do the new behaviors that the change requires and the change can actually occur. Right. Yeah. So you, you've laid out some of those types of things that need to happen, uh, particularly yes. internally for yes. the, for change to be adopted. Um, but there are also all the organizational things that happen and should be happening. And frankly, a lot of times change initiatives aren't uh, don't have the impact that they're that are desired and they fail because leaders and organizations and the structures that they put in place really don't help to facilitate and sustain that change. So maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about what you found as you're putting together your book about some of those biggest mistakes that you see organizations and leaders engaging in when they're trying to push a change initiative? Oh, I love that question. So 
So, you know, in the book, as you know, I talk about this exactly what I've talked about, why change is hard for us, you know, based on our historical wiring, how, how an individual person goes through change. And then I talk about our five-step change model, which was, is very, it turns out great minds, very lined up with a change arc and um, is really built to overcome those mistakes that people make. So the, the first step of our change model is called, is self-named, uh, uh, clarify the change and why it's needed. So that's the first thing that people do wrong. Often they, even a big change, they just kind of roll into it without ever that. It's usually, as you know, a fairly small kind of change initiation team, some senior people thinking about the change. Sometimes they just start going and they don't stop and say, okay, what exactly are we changing? What are the risks and rewards of changing that? And how are we going to frame it up for people with a why that's compelling to them? And, and can, I, can I add... Yeah, yeah. That some sometimes you got that smaller leadership team, right? That's that's leading out on this, maybe some sort of a, a multifunction, interfunction task force or something like that. All of these people have probably been in tons and tons of meetings to talk about all of this, right? And so I think sometimes it's laziness, sometimes it's just not doing their due diligence that they don't think about how to communicate this and frame it up for the rollout and for everyone else. I think sometimes they just forget that they've been embedded in it and it, it comes naturally to them. They, they fully understand the why and they forget that nobody else knows anything about it. And so wow, they, they that, ju- that then they jump from like zero to 60 in a second, instead of taking a little bit of time to rev people up. Yes, that's exactly right. And in fact, there's a, there's a graphic in the book and it took me a long time to help the designer understand what I was trying to say. It, that shows the five step of steps of our model. And it shows individual people going through their change arcs at different ways along the path. And what you're saying is exactly true. Like, let's say there's a, not even the task force yet, but a a small senior leadership team who's starting to think about a change. Let's say they're deciding that they're going to change their product, their manufacturing facility, they're going to change their production process. And as you say, they've been thinking about it for a couple months. They've gone through their change arc. They've asked the questions and start out thinking it was going to be difficult, costly, and weird, made that mindset shift. And then, as you say, they turn to the next level of people, maybe the task force, and they're like, okay, we're going to do this thing. You guys are all good with it, right? And they expect them to somehow magically be where they are after two months, three months, six months of thinking about it. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And it's one of the uh, things that makes the change arc uh, a useful frame because you can say to leaders, then remember that. Everybody that you tell is going to start doing, going through their change arc the moment they hear about it. And it's going to take them some time, just like it took you some time. So that's a, it's a helpful frame, right? And and to also recognize that people process things at different speeds at different and speeds. To, to make it personal for a second. Uh, I just think about me and my spouse. Uh, we've been married about 20 years. We know each other very well. Uh, we have very different personalities, very different styles. And I tend to be more, I, I would still say I'm a bit risk averse. Um, I don't like to take, you know, crazy risks, but I also don't mind trying things and, you know, taking reasonable risks and whatever. And my wife is much more risk averse than I am. And so we could even start at the same place with the same information at the same time in terms of this change arc. 
And I just process things differently than her. Yes. And it takes, it takes her a different amount of time. It usually takes a bit longer for her to yeah. get, you know, so I, so I get to a place where I accept it and I'm like, okay, let's do this. And it takes me X amount of time. And then it might take her X squared or X plus 10 or whatever. And I can either be a jerk about it and yeah. put pressure on her, or yeah. I can let her sit with it and go through the process and be supportive where I can. And otherwise be patient. And then she'll yeah. come along. Yes. Right? Oh, what a great example. And it's exactly the same with me and my husband, by the way. And I've not only do I, I'm pretty good at not putting pressure on him or being a jerk about it, but I also know that he, for instance, needs more information than I do. And so, you know, if I can help find that information or if I just get out of his way and let him gather the information, that's a great example. And the more leaders um, in change initiatives can do that, can recognize that, as you say, people process things at different times. That's great. That's really great advice. So then the other thing I wanted to say about that first step is the why. And you started to say this, but the, the why for that small senior team may not be at all compelling to the larger organization, right? Like, for instance, if they're going to make a change that makes the organization more profitable, all right, that's going to be compelling for people who have equity or whose you know, compensation is tied to profitability. But for that man or woman who's on the production line and is going to make $18 an hour no matter what, profitability is not a big deal. But again, as you say, having less busy work, doing your work more efficiently, serving the client better, those all might be very compelling wise. So that's the first step. You think about what and why. And then the second step is called envision the future state. And that's where that little team, again, on behalf of the organization, has to get very clear about what do we think it will look like when we've made this change and how will we measure that success? So both kind of the aspirational, this is how the organization is going to be better, and how will we know if we've actually gotten there, right? And again, doing it on behalf of the organization. And you notice that those first two steps, those are those three things people want to know. What is this? Why is it happening? What will it look like? Okay, so then the third step, and I think this is what you were talking about, we call build the change. And that's where usually it's not that very small senior team that's going to manage and drive the change. So you build a change team and you bring them in in the same way we've talked about. Here's the change. Here's why it's happening. What does this mean to you? How are you going to do it? You know, so you get them on board. And you also think about any other stakeholders that you haven't thought about yet who could get in the way or help, but aren't either on the change team or on that initial team. And then the main task of that third step is, to your earlier point also, really build a good practical change plan. Make sure, I mean, any change is a project, right? And you have, you can't uh, forget about that part of it. You really have to think through what are we going to have to do? What order should we do it in? Who's going to be responsible for it? And make a really good plan for the change. So that's the third step. Now, the fourth step is the thing that, in my experience, most often doesn't happen in organizations, and we call it lead the transition. And that's where you figure out who's going to be most affected by the change psychologically and emotionally, and how, you know, what, what are going to be the most difficult things for them? What are they going to think is difficult, costly, and weird? And then we have, and I can explain them to you if you want, we, we have these four change levers, levers in the sense of, you know, force multipliers, things you can, uh, kind of principles you can apply to help create a what we call a transition plan, an actual human transition plan, which you then layer on top of the practical plan and do them at the same time. So you can help people through the change as you're making the changes. 
And then the last step we call keep the change going, because as you know, uh, changes, especially organizational changes, always have unintended consequences. And so if you just make the change and walk away, you're going to miss a lot. It's likely to fail. And if you keep your eye on the ball, one of the great things is the, the where you usually find out if you're listening that things aren't working as well as they could is from the people affected. So, right. So you get their input. They feel engaged and like they have some agency. You get their uh, recommendations about how to make it. So you, you make sure that the change is successful. The other thing that you can do in that fifth step is look at the um, organiz- overall organizational impediments to change. When you try and make any large change, you notice that there are things uh, in the systems and processes, things in the structure, things in the culture that have gotten in the way of this change, but will also get in the way of all future changes, right? So this is a good time to look at those and repair those. So I feel like that's a lot of uh, places where, okay, here's a mistake you could make. Here's how not to make it, you know? Yeah. And and having a a culture developed in your organization of change readiness and change capability, I think is really vital because like we've been saying this entire episode and this t- entire conversation, change is inevitable. The rate of change is only increasing even exponentially over the yeah. last couple of years. And so we need organizations, we need teams, we need individuals on our teams that are ready to lean into the change. And yeah. if, if that's not there, then we need to take the, the steps now so that we are more ready for the next time. And, and like you said, it, when you're going through a big scale initiative, and things aren't working and you hit those, those barriers, those, and there's those gaps that get identified, lean yeah. into that, like actually yes. identify those yes. recognize, like we, we tend to get, we get uh, self-conscious, we get, um, we, we get self-protective when we start to see, you know, what we call failure because something's not working the way we wanted it to. And if I'm in charge of that thing that didn't work the way we wanted it to now, I'm all of a sudden I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm afraid of my job or I'm afraid of, you know, someone thinking I'm not capable and we need to get past that. So if we can get past that, so we can just acknowledge what's happening uh, so that we can change the systems for the next time, we're going to yeah. be in such a better place. Yeah. I love that you keyed into that. And there's a part in the book and when I'm talking about step five, when I, when I talk ex- about exactly that and I say, you know, when, just what you said, if somebody's in charge of a certain part of the change and it's not going as planned or it's not going well, it's so easy to get into that, again, negative restrictive mindset. This is difficult, costly, weird. So you have to make that same mindset shift relative to changes. It's like, oh, but if we can make it better, that would be better. <laughs> and it might take time. It might be a little embarrassing, but yeah, it'll be better. It'll take us to a new normal. So yeah, helping people, um, it, it's like, you know, teaching people how to fish versus just giving them fish. That's why, that's why we've ended up using the the word change capable. It's like, okay, use this change to get good at change so that subsequent changes, changes that are a result of this change, changes that have nothing to do with this change, you'll be better able to deal with them going forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, Erica, I note the time. I'm going to have to let you go here in just a minute and get on with your busy day. But before we wrap things up for today, I wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, where they can find your book, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Okay, wonderful. So 
Um, you can go to my website, which is easily spelled my name, ericaanderson.com. And also my Twitter handle is Erica Anderson. And you can find the book there. You can find it at Amazon. It's, you know, hard copy, electric, audio, which I recorded. So if you want to listen to my voice for eight hours, you can do that. <laughs> and, um, and you can also go to our business website, which is proteus-international.com and find out how we work with clients and what we do. And I think uh, the last thought I'd love to share, share with you is, and your listeners, is we are capable of doing this. We can change the way we think. And that is a powerful thing to recognize. If you, There's a wonderful quote from Heraclides, I think, who said, we can't always control our circumstances, but we can always control our reaction to those circumstances. And that's what we're talking about here. And it's a powerful thing to recognize that. Yeah. Beautifully said, Erica. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Erica can do for you. Check out the book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Discover the unparalleled beauty of Kanab, Utah, the heart of the parks, and the ultimate base camp for your national park adventures. Kanab, Utah offers easy access to not one, not two, but three of America's most iconic national parks. Explore the majestic Grand Canyon, hike the stunning trails of Zion, and witness the awe-inspiring landscapes of Bryce Canyon. All just a stone's throw away from Kanab. But Kanab is more than just a gateway. Locals call it the Little Hollywood. It's a charming town with a vibrant community. So whether you're an outdoor enthusiast, a nature lover, or a curious traveler, Kanab welcomes you to make unforgettable memories in the heart of the parks. Plan your journey to Kanab today at visitkanabutah.com. Your gateway to endless adventures starts here.